umpires. We don't notice them until we notice them. These arbiters of baseball, they safeguard the integrity of the game even in the most chaotic circumstances. So what's it like behind the mask? Author and historian Bill Nowlin stops by to discuss what he learned about the daily lives of umpires in his new book, both on and off the field. Today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. And hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I am always your host, Jeff Lambert. Today, we're going to be talking about the lives of umpires. We're going to go behind the mask and see exactly what happens in their lives, both on and off the field. And to bring some more insight into that topic, I've invited Bill Nowlin to come in and discuss this. Well, not come in because we did it digitally, of course, but Bill is a baseball historian. He's an author who's written a multitude of books, including some of my personal favorites, When Baseball Went to War, Amazing Tales from the Boston Red Sox Dugout, and many more. And he has a new book out called Working a Perfect Game, Conversations with Baseball Umpires. Now, in this book, Bill sat down with 87 umpires, interviewed them all, and put together the collection of feedback that he got into a really interesting narrative that discusses everything from the road to becoming a professional to the regular daily professional and personal challenges that umpires face. So he was kind enough to to connect and for us to be able to sit down and discuss his new book. It was a great conversation, and I certainly hope you enjoy Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. And how's the weather up there in Massachusetts tonight? Is it getting any warmer? I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's uh, I'm indoors. The uh, it, it's kind of cool. It's it's been a nice uh, nice winter so far. Not enough snow. I like snow. I don't ski or anything, but I just like shoveling. Well, it's nice that spring training's right around the corner, and that's always exciting. You know, maybe one of the things it's around the corner. We'll see this maybe. year. That's true. That's very true. Uh, baseball, I know, is considering a lot of options, and hopefully, yeah. we wrap up this COVID mess sooner than later. Yeah. One of the things that that came up when I was doing research uh, about your life, you were one of the first individuals to reach the mound when Jim Lomborg threw that final out when the Sox won the 1967 pennant. Tell us a little bit about that. I imagine a few of our listeners might have not have even been born in 1967. That might even include the host. That uh, is true. That is correct. <laughs> the uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I'm old enough that I was there. I uh, went to the three of the last four games, I guess, and uh, I went to that one with my 13 year old sister. And uh, there was no thought of security for some reason. I mean, if the Red Sox won that game, they were clinched for at least a tie for the pennant. And there was four teams that had been battling for the pennant right up to the last week. It was a really, really tight uh, match. The Red Sox hadn't won a pennant since 1946, when I was one year old and don't remember. Uh, the, uh, but it was just, we crept down uh, closer and closer. I had standing room someplace up in the back. And, and I was on the third base side, just kept 
creeping cl closer and closer to the field. And by the time I got down to the next to final out, I was right in the front row, practically in the aisle, but scrunched down. And then the minute uh, the final out was, I hopped over the edge and there were no ushers, no security or anything. I don't, you know, they learned. And then and I got memory... out to the mound, said congratulations. He was like a little scared because there were a lot of people rushing in all at once. It was a, it was a pandemonium on the field, as I think Ned Martin said. And uh, I, then I realized I got my sister there. I better get out of there and uh, get her to safety too. Oh, what a moment to be, you know, to be involved. And, in. you know, overall, I like to start and ask this question with authors, you know, that come on the show. You have a, a very deep relationship with baseball. Uh, I've seen from, you know, you've written a lot of books about the Boston Red Sox, which certainly uh, makes me an excited individual uh, as a Red Sox fan myself. I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about your relationship with baseball and where it started. Where did your love of the game begin? Well, I am old enough that it was almost the only sport for a while. It seemed like I, I didn't play hockey. I didn't know how to skate very well. And I'm uh, kids. That's just what kids played in the neighborhood growing up. And we had a backyard that uh, the neighbors had a backyard that the guy let us smooth out the the field and we made our own field and we just played after school every day. That's why I don't know how to play a musical instrument because I was out playing baseball just for fun. I got a double in little league once that was my big accomplishment on the field. Uh, but then I didn't even continue past age nine or whatever, because I knew I wasn't really very good at it. My father sold hot dogs at Fenway park for a couple of years before I was born, uh, mm -hmm. trying to raise money to go to the New York world's fair. In 1939, he, it worked. He went with a couple of his friends. But, you know, when he told me he'd been a hot dog vendor at Fenway Park, that was to me like, what more could you achieve in life? That was like, yeah. I thought that was the greatest job in the world. Uh, being president of the United States isn't maybe what it used to be, but uh, it seemed like better than being president of the United States anyhow. I, I, know, I just grew up around the game and uh, it, television was coming in. Uh, when I was growing up. So I'd, I'd get to watch games on TV, hear them on the radio. And I lived, uh, it took me about an hour to get to the park. I could get in for a dollar in those days, when, uh, including public transportation. I mean, the price was 50 cents. And for a nickel going each way on the public transportation, I could, could go in. Uh, and so it was a very inexpensive undertaking. I, went, I used to go to a lot of games. After, I could leave after school and get to the game by the third or fourth inning wow. and uh, on a day game. But I, I just ended up going to a lot of games. And uh, Ted Williams was playing. He was my childhood hero and uh, in almost every way. Uh, baseball, and it is a Marine Corps pilot when I thought that was a cool thing. He was mm -hmm. a big supporter of uh, the Jimmy Fund, raising money to fight cancer in children. Uh, he was – he just uh, – had a lot of things going for him. That's I've written five or six, seven books about Ted Williams. Now, you obviously have a love for research and writing. Did you find yourself writing about baseball at a young age too, or did that come later? Actually, that's kind of interesting. When I was 12 or 13 years old, we started the neighborhood newspaper. I lived on a street called uh, Maple Street in the town of Lexington. And uh, a friend of mine and myself started a two-page newspaper called the Maple Street Mumbles. It was just like stories of what went on in the neighborhood, which was not much. But the, I decided at some point to create a sports page, which was the second page, the flip side, called it the fastball. And all I did was look at the newspaper 
and it said the Red Sox beat the Senators seven to five. So I'd write in the Red Sox beat the Senators. I was 12 years old, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first sports writing. But then it was another 50 years or so before I came back to it again. This whole researching and writing about baseball things started in the late 1990s for me. So it's 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 relatively uh new. I I went to college, I got a degree. I taught college for a while, political science, but then I started a record company with a couple of friends of mine and and that caught my that kept me busy. Kept me off the streets and kept me busy and we were we did well. And then uh as the company started getting more mature, I had an opportunity to write a book about Ted Williams. A friend of mine uh had started one and I joined in on him. We interviewed it was it was pretty exciting. It gave me an opportunity to interview a bunch of people, something I'd never done before. But we interviewed 200 people that had known Ted Williams at one time or another, from John Glenn, who flew with him as a Marine Corps pilot in Korea. I interviewed two barbers, just guys that cut his hair. and yep. the, But they had great stories about going out behind the barber's shop. And uh, he would cast flies and because he was a big fisherman. And just all these stories that went off in all kinds of tangents. Some baseball, of course. I got a chance to gave me an excuse to call up Willie Mays on the phone and Juan Marshall down in the Dominican Republic. I got to him and talked to, to all kinds of uh, of people that you know. You said I'm calling. I'm working on a book about Ted Williams. The doors would open. And now we have this book where you had a chance to speak to I think it was 75 or 85 umpires. In yeah, I, I don't know how. I actually don't know how many. I know seventy-two major league umpires, and then a bunch of guys from AAA that yep. were work, trying to work their way up. But there's only seventy-six major league umpires at any time. So I really interviewed almost all of them. Well, I did it over a period of four or five years. So there were umpires coming and going in the profession. But um, it was uh, it came out of nowhere. The idea. I I don't even know how I got started on it. Uh, I had read a book that a couple books that other people had written about umpires and that kind of interested me. But I, I think like most fans, I went to games and I didn't pay attention to the umpires. They just sort of showed up mm -hmm. and it was kind of exciting if they get in a big argument with somebody. And, uh, but I didn't really think about them that much. They, as I used to joke about how they came out of a hole in the ground and then they stood around for three hours making calls during the game, getting an occasional argument, and then they went back in the hole in the ground. And I never thought about their lives outside the game or or anything of that sort. And the way that you wrote this book is, is particular, Bill. I really enjoyed the format of it because it's not so much you creating a narrative mm -hmm. yourself. This is in an interview format where you're sitting down and really talking about the back and forth that you had in these conversations. Yeah, I, I don't know. As I said, I don't really know how I got started on it, but uh, it, uh, one of the things I did early on is I've been involved with SABR, Society for American Baseball Research, S-A-B-R. It's a nonprofit with a little over 6,000 members. And we put on a convention in Boston in 2002. And, uh, I offered to run a panel on umpires. This is a long time ago. Uh, but I got to know one or two umpires at that time, just a little bit. I mean, when the panel was over, I didn't follow up with them or anything, but I just made a couple contacts there. And then just later on, I, I got inspired to learn a little bit more about them. Uh, they were uh, kind of mystery figures in a way. And I, I got into, I decided to visit, if I could, the room where they 
changed before the game and after the game. And they welcomed me in. And I just started asking questions like, how did you get started doing this? Did you, uh, were you a baseball player that washed out or, you know, would you have been a police sergeant or something? You know, what, would you've been in law enforcement? What what got you involved in? And that was where the whole thing came from. I, I really started talking to people about why they got into the game, what their parents did for a living, what pushed them in this direction. And, And the stories are very different from person to person. Agreed. Some of these stories, you know, just reading them, thinking about being in that moment. I listed a couple of my favorites as we go through some of the questions we discussed. But, you know, overall, Bill, I'm wondering, you know, as we talk about your book and we talk about some of the content in it, um, was there anything that jumped out at you as you recall these conversations? What were some of the commonalities that you remember about why these individuals chose to go into umpiring? It it really was varied. Uh, I mean, one of the things I always ask them is what their parents did for a living. And I mean, Phil Cuzzy, his father was a uh, sheet metal worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Tumpane, his father was a salesman. His mother was a nurse. Ted Barrett's mother was also a nurse. His father served in the Navy. Laz Diaz, his father cut sugarcane in Cuba. And mm-hmm. then he, they came here after the, the Cuban Revolution. Gary Cedars from his father was a truck driver. Jeff Nelson, his father was a high school principal. His mother was also in education. Uh, Very, very different uh, backgrounds. And they, I all asked them all what they think they would have done if they hadn't ended up as umpires. And that varied as well. A lot of them did say law enforcement. And that makes sense because they're in there with a set of rules. They're enforcing the rules. They're uh, concerned with doing things the right way for the integrity yep. of the game. And uh, that, that made a lot of sense. But I mean, other ones, uh, one guy said he would have been an art teacher. Yep. Which that was surprising. He was, uh, he was on that track at, uh, at one point and uh, was going to have, uh, have followed that as a pursuit eventually if he, had, if he hadn't gone this way. You mentioned Phil Cousy just a minute ago, and I yeah. thought his story about why he got involved in umpiring was interesting. He said that he was selling he was selling disc storage cabinets or just really old electronic you know, pieces, not old at the time, but he ended up going to a Yankees game and just started watching the umpires and saying, I, I could do this, and yeah. this sounds like a really cool profession, and I'm going to you know, try and do something outside of just selling things and right. just – just that whole, you know, moment of realization, just sitting in the stands like the rest of us and having that idea come to mind, like, this looks like something that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a couple of them, um, one of them, uh, his mother got him involved. Uh, it was Doug Eddings. His mother was in charge of the umpires in the Little League. She was just her volunteer work in her town. And she told him he was going to be working a game because the regular guy couldn't do it. I, he was 12 years old or something like that. So he was a little older than some of the other kids. Uh, and she said, you're working the game. He said, I am not. You know, what, what are you talking about? She said, well, you know, it pays $5. Or, oh, he said, okay, well, you know. And he he just got into it that way. He decided he liked it. They were short on umpires. He filled in. He enjoyed it. Somebody else did it on a dare. A friend of his said, I'm going to umpire school. And he said, some, I said, what's umpire school? So what's down in Florida and they teach you how to do it. You know, you can do it. He said, I'm not interested in doing that. And the guy basically mm-hmm. said, I dare you. And uh, <laughs> took him up on it. Let's talk about umpire school a little bit, Bill. You know, one thing you did ask pretty much all of these individuals was what was it like on the road to becoming an umpire? And that's another thing we don't really think about as fans. Like, is it easy? Is it tough? Do you have an overall, I guess, uh, a detail that you could share with us about 
Uh, what's the road to the big leagues like for an umpire? Well, for one thing, if you don't have eight to 10 years to work your way up, you might as well forget about it. It's it's hmm. a very demanding apprenticeship that you've got to go through. First, you've got to go to umpire school these days, and you've got to do really well. Umpire school is like a lot of those places you go to. They say, look to the person on your right, look to the person on your left. Only one of you is going to make it. And the chances of a class of 150 people, only about one or two are ever going to make it to the major leagues. And uh, there's a kind of a funny story involved there. Um, this guy who they went through, the, they went did the roll call alphabetically going around the room and asking each person to stand up and just say a little bit about themselves. And as they had begun, they'd said the, uh, you know, one or two people might make it. And uh, so this guy, you know, introduced himself. And then he was at the Wendelstead School, which is one of the two main schools in Florida. Uh, and uh, they got going through the thing. And all of a sudden, Hunter Wendelstead stood up and he said, my name's Hunter Wendelstead. And the guy said, well, his father owns the school. Of course, he's going to make it. I, there goes my chance of being an umpire. But in <laughs> fact, I think three or four people made it that year, he said. So it's look at just that. really, I mean, they grade umpires at every step along the way. You got to pass in school, you got to mm -hmm. do exceptionally well, but then you get assigned to lowest level, maybe trip, maybe D, class D, class C. You got to work your way up a year at a yep. time, maybe two years at a time. And when you get to the very top level, they have observers there that are grading you every single game, hustle, whether you're in the right position to make the, the best call. Are whether you made the right call, you know, just did you have what it take? If an argument came up, did you handle it well? Uh, or did you kind of get involved in it too much or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and they get, they get grades and they still do after their major league umpires. They've got tenure pretty much after being major league umpires, but they still get grades uh, every single game. And a lot of these guys wash out. Uh, one of the guys I know who, has uh, works as an umpire observer. He's one of the guys that does the grading. He had put in six or seven years and said, you know, I don't know what this future holds here. He looked at the umpiring staff. They were not, many of them were younger guys. And he said, it could be three or four more years before I have an opening. Hmm. And he decided that he just had to drop out. He, he couldn't keep going anymore because they only make $15,000, $20,000 a year uh, real. I mean, when they get to the major leagues, they get into the hundreds of thousands. Right. But um, working your way up is is really economically uh, uh, precarious. Uh, right. You got to you know have off season jobs and work hard at those, and or you know just somehow you got to make it. And he he just he wanted to raise a family. He just couldn't hack it any longer, so he dropped out and became a very successful realtor. Yeah, I was surprised, you know, I always figured, you know, just with the the many rules that you have to not only be knowledgeable about, but also have you, how you conduct yourself on the field, there has to be a very strict education and oversight process. And this book really illustrated that for me. But, you know, you mentioned too, just the, it's not an easy job once you get into that position, if you can hang on long enough to get to the MLB. There's a lot of things that we don't think about, again, as fans, about the on-the-field and the off-the-field stresses and daily things that, you know, really seem inconsequential to us but matter a lot to a person just going about their job. You know, I was wondering, why don't we start off with, uh, I guess, the off-the-field life 
that umpires have to go through. You mentioned spending a lot of time in the minor leagues and not making yeah. a lot of money. What are some other common uh, things that well, well, umpires let's, deal with? Let's say you have made it and you get that call, the call that you've been waiting for for years. And they say they usually play a joke on them when they call them, but uh, then they, you know, congratulate them for having a, having made it to the becoming a major league umpire. They're still on probation then for a year or two. Uh, but um, they, uh, and they don't get the call until they've put in a hundred, maybe one guy put in over 1300 games wow. as a essentially major league apprentice umpire yep. years and years before he got hired to the major league staff. Uh, but it's, it's not an easy life. Ball player might come to say you are a ball player for the uh, Marlins, mm -hmm. for instance. You might go to Miami and then you have a seven-game stretch, maybe ten games, uh, homestand, and then you go out on the road. Umpires never stay more than three or four nights at a given location. Yep. I don't know why. I mean, I know why it doesn't look good if they stay or hang around too long in one place, maybe. That's yep. the idea. They could befriend people too much. But they shift them off. They'll play one set of uh, games, three or four games. Then they're off to the next city. And they've got to get there. Typically, they make three or four different airplane reservations, like a Sunday game. They'll just, because they don't know when the game's going to end. It might go to extra innings. There might be right. a rain delay. You never know what's going to happen. So they'll book flights if they can, however they can, to get to the next city on time. Yep. There's only three, four of them on a crew. Uh, so if you're on a major league team, you've got 24 teammates. When the rosters expand, you've got a few more. You've got the clubhouse guys. You've got uh, traveling secretary. You've got uh, PR people on the team, media relations. So you've got a traveling party of maybe 40 or 50 people. Umpires, and you've got a charter flight. The umpires oh. go on commercial aircraft. They um, so they've got to get. To, they don't have somebody picking them up at the park and chauffeuring them to the uh, uh, aircraft that's waiting for them. They've got to be like the rest of us and get to the flight and pass through security and and all that type of stuff. Yep. Get to a hotel, check in, be ready for the the next day's game. And there's just that tight circle of them. They don't have a whole bunch of friends. They you know hopefully know people in cities that they've befriended and get to see them but it's a it's it's very tight fraternity really but yeah close-knit they don't they can't have a lot of friends and they're hardly ever home because they're on the road yeah just thinking about the family ramifications of that like you said they're switching out crews every series they go most of the time so you have you know you don't have the same group that you're traveling with throughout the season so it it must be a lonely existence to an yeah. extent yeah and one of them, uh, Ted Barrett, I mentioned before, he has, he's an unusual guy in that he has a uh, doctorate in theology. He's actually Reverend Barrett, if you want to uh, get right down to it. But his dissertation was, was uh, on the, essentially the mental stresses that umpires uh, face. And uh, sure. he, he did a lot of anonymous interviews with umpires and, you know, a lot of people have substance abuse problems. Umpires are not immune from that. It's they have, I think, partly because of some of his research, they have very good medical care now, including psychological counseling provided by Major League Baseball. So I think it's a lot, lot better than it used to be. When you and I grew up, you probably used to see a lot of umpires that didn't look like they were very fit right. physically. You don't see that 
that much anymore because they have physical trainers that work with them. Uh, and they have uh, very good counseling, medically, psychologically, and so forth. But it's a, it's a concern. Sure. And it's good to hear that that has evolved along with the growth of the MLB. You know, I remember, and I've done a couple episodes on players, you know, who played in the seventies and eighties, you know, even earlier, you know, they'd be making a million dollars a year, get this big contract, and then they're sleeping in their car two years later. And there was, there was no pension, there was no retirement, there was no career guidance, you know, there wasn't any of that up until recently. So players have benefited, you know, and it's good to see that umpires also have a a safety net, I guess you could say, to be able to help them grow beyond just the the career that they're doing True. now. And, and what you say, you know, you made me think of one other thing too, is players, if they succeed, of course, they get a round of applause, people asking them for autographs, you know, flocking around them, worshiping yep. them. That doesn't happen for umpires. There might That's be true. an occasional umpire nerd that'll ask for a, an autograph here and there, but for the most part, they are very anonymous. Uh, and you can, if you go to, I go to a game and I'll catch some of them walking in. They come mm-hmm. in in street clothes. Nobody knows who they are. They're just walking with the crowd. And nobody has the slightest idea that that's an umpire walking right next to them. Yep. Like you mentioned, some of uniform. <laughs> right, right. And they've got the mask on. I mean, there yeah. are some stories in your books about umpires. They take the subway to the game. Like you said, they just yeah. be with everybody else. There was a funny story from uh, Chris Guccione. I hope I'm saying mm-hmm. his last name correctly. You, you are. He yeah. was. He was talking about how he he ended up staying in the same hotel as uh, one of the teams that night. And like you said, that's not usually common. Yeah. But he said he was on the elevator with them and some of the players were talking about the game and he started asking him like, oh, how did the umpire do? You know, what did you think of yeah. this and that? And like, they had no clue who he was. And they had right. a, a whole conversation right there. The players who were on the field with them. Yeah. Another story, another elevator story. Uh, a guy got on with one of his fellow umpires. The two of them got on. And it was, I, I think it was maybe Chicago, the bunch of Cubs fans, five or six Cubs fans in the elevator too. And I, I guess the Cubs maybe lost, but they, uh, one of the umpires just said to the other umpire, he, he said, did you see that play at second base? Boy, the umpire really blew that call, boy. And he turned to the other people in the elevator and said, if I saw that umpire, I'd just punch him out, wouldn't you? And some <laughs> of the guys in the elevator said, yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, he was just goofing on him. And they never did find out he was an umpire. <laughs> A dangerous game to play, that's for sure. But that that I want to talk about that in a little bit. Some of the dangers that come, you know, with being Mm -hmm. an umpire. I want to go back a little bit to what you said about the support program that's in place for umpires. One thing that jumped out at me, and I always figured it was this way, but hearing it from some of these umpires talking about the health hazards of being an umpire in baseball. Uh, There was uh, one individual who said he had gotten Ed Hickok said he had six of seven concussions and two of them were serious. Yeah, that blew me away. This one guy this year, I, I don't remember who it was, but the first uh, week of the year, he was knocked out for the um, last year, 2020. He, uh, he was just injured for the rest of the year. I mean, things you can imagine things happen. You can get struck by on the knee by a batted ball that it's usually behind the plate. That is the most dangerous situation uh, Maybe a bat that swings around too much and hits you on the back of the head, or just a ball that glances off your mask can give you really hard. I mean, I wouldn't get want to wear a mask and get hit by a foul ball right in the face. Uh, yeah. They immediately have a concussion protocol that's very serious these days, and they'll take somebody right out of the game and work a three-man crew from that point on. But, I mean, there's, there's one umpire that um, I interviewed him. Uh, well, I chatted with him. 
one game uh, two years ago, and then he just wasn't there the next day. And I, I'd seen saw he got hit by a foul ball down at third base, and it was serious enough. He he just couldn't come back the next day. They brought somebody else in quick, so he uh, they, they still had four people on the field. But uh, there there are times they have to shift around, and it's it's not uncommon to have an injury that keeps you out for a day or two. Absolutely, and and like you said, now you only have seventy six umpires total. So someone else is going to have to come in and fill in that spot if they can't make it and, you know, being on call and trying to, I guess, help each other out to make it happen from such a small group. Well, it's an opening for the AAA umpires, of course. And oh, okay. so we saw that a lot this this last year with uh, COVID. Uh, there were a number of umpires that they gave them a choice of opting out. If you don't feel safe, if you want to, you know, maybe you have a family where you have an older parent and you don't want to take a chance on getting sick yourself and bringing it the disease home. So uh, quite a bunch of them, uh, eight or nine of them opted out, and, and there was no penalty in, involved. They just sure. essentially took the year off. But that gave an opportunity for a number of AAA guys to get in 30, 40, 50 games that they wouldn't have gotten in otherwise and get a chance to get evaluated at the major league level. That's true. And one other thing I did want to mention, and maybe you could speak a little more at length about this. I was not aware that oftentimes MLB umpires will sometimes go down to the minor leagues to officiate games. And they will take that opportunity to kind of use that as a mentoring uh, option, you know, for the other ones that are there. So there's kind of this, you're called up and sometimes you go down. Uh, but the overall arching thing was I thought it was really neat how they all kind of look out for each other and help each yeah, other build they, up their skills. There really is a fraternity among them. It's it's a very tight-knit profession for reasons that we can all imagine and mm -hmm. talked about how you, you better be friends with the other people on your crew because you don't have a whole team to hang around with, just three other guys. And Absolutely. uh the uh and but they, you know, one of them uh told me this year that uh I did some interviews with with the guys about uh, what it was like working during the year of COVID-19. And some of them said it was Chris Guccione, you mentioned, he said it was actually great. And I said, what? And he said that they got to fly on the team charters for one thing, they made an exception. And so all of a sudden they didn't have to do all this scrambling for things. They just, you know, went on the bus and see those socially distanced, uh, I'd rather row on the bus. Yeah. But uh they, you know, got on the planes and, and flew to the next city and just went right. And they stayed at the team hotels, which made it easier, too. Uh, but uh, the young guys, somebody else said, working as a crew chief, said he really enjoyed seeing all these young guys come up and have an opportunity to uh, see the game. And they would get together after games. They'd sit 10 feet apart in a suite or something, and they'd they'd order meals from Grubhub because they couldn't. The hotel restaurants weren't open. Right. I mean, there all kinds of challenges that they had, but some things were easier, like the transportation, and some other things, you know, you just can't go to a restaurant. They had to, but they'd sit around and talk to these young guys about what it's like to be an umpire. And he said he just really enjoyed seeing this guy's in his 50s. And he said he just really enjoyed some of these guys in their late 20s and early 30s having a chance to talk to them about the game. Yeah. I mean, you dedicate your life to something like that, go through a grueling process to reach that point. You want to see the continuation of that right. tradition of that high level of excellence. I, I get it completely. We're going to take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch, and we will be right back for more conversation with Bill. Hey, everybody. It's Jeff, the founder and host of the show. 
and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the Baseball History Podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber, you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, ad-free episodes, and video companions. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, the cost is just $30 for an annual subscription. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting Nine tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. You know, overall, so we talked about, I guess, some of the stressors of the job, the things that you have to go through to become an umpire and the, the daily things that can take away from your family life, your your health, your just overall well-being. But one of the neat things about this job that must always keep a lot of them coming back is the moments, you know, or the players that they get to interact with. Every kid wants to meet their childhood hero or they want to meet the big star or they want to be there for the 3000th hit or the World Series Grand Slam. These umpires get to do that. And the, your book has a lot of different stories about, you know, just neat interactions that these umpires had. I was wondering if there's any that jumped out at you that you wanted to share. Well, needless to say, most of them aren't fans of a particular team because that would be bad news. Uh, some of them grew up as fans of a particular team, but that gets bred out of you pretty quickly as you end up working around, uh, you know, 30 teams and you've got to be fair to, to everybody. Yep. I, I will say that the one thing that impressed me right from the beginning was how much they cared about doing things the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of them, and in fact, it would be true with every one of them if I kept asking the same question over and over again. Universally, they, I would ask people and they'd say they would lose sleep if they made the wrong call. And I'm not talking about a call that was just demonstrably wrong and it was overturned on recall. I mean, that's bad. You don't like to get overturned. Yeah. Uh, but it's part of the game. It, it happens. Right. Uh, but sometimes they made the right call, but they realized it shouldn't have even come up for recall. If they'd been four feet further up the line, they would have been in a better position to see the play. And they beat themselves up because they was just that bit out of position. They, you know, they made the right call, no problem, but they beat themselves up over it. They just really want to do things right. And I think most of them sincerely care about the game too. There's one or two of them told me it's a job. 
And I, but I couldn't tell if they were doing that just to be come across as so full of themselves. Uh, yeah. I think even those people truly believe that it's a calling uh, and that uh, and, and care about integrity of the game. Uh, in uh, it, it, it really impressed me. You know, one and of the I lost stories- I where we were going. You wish, I got off on a tangent there. You were starting to ask me something. No, that's okay. I, you know, I, I was wondering about some of the player stories that some of these umpires might have had, these memorable moments. And to your point about just wanting to make sure they get it right, one of the stories that jumped out at me that I, was uh, Greg Gibson. He was talking about, it was in 1999. It was the Marlins versus the Cardinals. And he said that uh, Cliff Floyd was up to bat and he hit, a, he hit a ball and it bounced off the wall, right off the top of the wall. So he's rounding second base and he mentions to the umpire, hey, that was a home run. Mm. And the umpire responded, no, that ball hit the wall. And Cliff Floyd kept going around the bases and stopped at the third base coach and asked him, was that a home <laughs> run or was it a, a ground row double? And the third, base, uh, the, the third base umpire went over to Greg and said, that was a home run. That wasn't off the wall. Yeah. And Greg, you know, he could have been stubborn and stuck to it. But, uh, you know, we didn't have his replay at this time. Right. But he changed the call. And, yeah. you know, just on the advice of his, you know, of his crew. And that's just an example of doing the right thing, maybe eating crow a little bit where you have, you know, this young ball player not even taking your word for it and going to somebody else to get the right call. But it just illustrates your point. It's not about being right. It's not about, I guess, having the power on the field. It's about, you know, making the right call at the end of the day, the sanctity of the game. I think, you know, they trust each other and the third base umpire may have had a better angle on it and uh, it worked out. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, there are moments for umpires. It's exciting to work a World Series, unsurprisingly. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the biggest honor of all is to be selected to work the World Series. But there are umpires during a regular course of a, a season, they might happen to be working the plate for a no-hitter. I mean, that yeah. every umpire can tell you which no-hitters they've worked and uh, what position they were working on the field during the no hitter. And, you know, when I find out somebody's worked, uh, maybe worked a Randy Johnson no hitter or something like that, many of them will tell me that they didn't realize it till the seventh inning, of course, oh, because wow. they don't look they're at the scoreboard. Right. They're focused they're in it. pitch by pitch. They have to know how many outs there are. So they know if it's a force play or that type of stuff, but they're not really tracking the game the way a fan would track the game. And so they just pick up a buzz in the crowd and then, you know, what's going on? And then they glance up at the scoreboard and see a zero in the hits column. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, there's a no hitter going on here. And to keep your composure too, after you find that out where, you know, you have, like you said, keep your impartiality, make sure that you're not yeah. getting caught up in the moment because you have to be objective. You have to be in the moment. And I mean, one of the reasons that umpires appreciate instant replay now that we have it is the experience that Jim Joyce had. He was working the what could have been and should have been a perfect game Yep. Uh, that was uh, pitched. And uh, he made the, the third out, you know, he, he called the runner safe on what would have been the final out, third out of the ninth inning in a perfect game. Yep. He called the runner safe. He admitted instantly afterwards when he got back into the umpire's room after the game and they sent a pool reporter down from the, from the press he said, I just, you know, five minutes later, he said, I looked at it on TV. I was wrong. That kid pitched a perfect game and I deprived him of it. And, you know, how he, the rest of his life, he will always feel bad yep. that he, he, in effect, by mistake, took a perfect game away from somebody. Now he got together with a player and they wrote a book together called oh. Nobody's Perfect. How about that? And it was just great because the player forgave, forgave him. They, his, you know, 
Jim had had a problem. His father had been seriously ill that day, and yep. uh, his mind might have been a little off. Maybe not. He, you know, he made the call that he thought was the right call. Yep. Nobody else disputed it, but uh, instant replay protects us against situations like that now. Absolutely. You know, it, it's it's another stressor of the job. Going back to yeah. your previous point, you have to live with the calls you make. And we have to accept, you know, as, as fans, at least currently, human nature is a part of the game. It's, it's going to happen. I, I, I wouldn't like robo umps. Uh, I don't I, I wouldn't like that because I it is part of the game. And yeah. I, I don't know, you know, you could have an automated strike zone. I mean, if we could put a man on the moon 40 years ago, we could certainly tell whether a ball fits a, a three dimensional strike zone. I like it the way it is. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about the sanctity of the game. And, and later on in, in our bonus portion of this episode, I want to ask you about some of these uh, future of umpiring questions. So for those of you listening, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Bill, overall, you know, as we talk about the lives of umpires, the road they have to take to get to the majors, uh, what they sacrifice, the rewards of being an umpire. If you could take all of the interviews that you conducted and in putting this book together, what do you think uh, regular people just may not appreciate about umpires and the work that they do. How, how hard it is to get to become an umpire, how yeah. much they care about the game, and what it, what sacrifices they have to make, not just the years to get there, but in terms of lifestyle and uh, you know the way they're essentially have a, a fairly lonely existence apart from family much of the time. They do these days have better benefits in terms of vacation time, so they do get to go home to family. But they may be in Seattle and their family may be in uh, Kansas City or something. And so getting home is a, can take you a day or so. An adventure in itself, for sure. Well, Bill, the name of the book is Working a Perfect Game, Conversations with Baseball Umpires. For our listeners, uh, if they have additional questions, want to reach out to you to maybe talk a little bit more baseball, how can our listeners connect with you outside of this episode? First of all, I don't know if you do this, but here's what the, game, here's what the book looks like. Please do. Yes. I don't know if you have a graphic that goes up or something, but it's called working a perfect game. And what's the perfect game? It's not the pitcher that pitches a perfect game. The umpire's definition of a perfect game is a game in which they don't screw up. They get through the whole game. They feel they made every call correctly. There were no controversies. That was a, that's a perfect game. Now, the, the two ways that people can best get the book are really from the publisher, Summer Game Books. And they have a website www.summergamebook.com or places like Amazon uh, where, you know, you can do that. You can support an independent bookstore if you order it through them. Amen to that. Independent bookstore, if you can, especially during this time of COVID, but I'll make sure to include links in the show notes to Amazon as well as to the publisher so people can go out and get their copy uh, right when they finish this episode. So Bill, overall, hey, thanks for coming on the show and talking baseball and and just uh, giving us a little bit more of a glimpse into the life of umpires. As you see, when you get me going, it's hard to get me to stop. But, uh, I enjoy <laughs> you it. Both. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Well, that's all for today's episode, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, to hear more of my conversation with Bill and additional content for future episodes, become a member of the show by clicking the subscribe button in the show notes. We'll see you next time. And remember, there are only two seasons winter, and baseball.